That's not to say I don't think it can work. I just think what's happening is we're not paying enough attention to the cultural dynamic, the habits, the norms and behaviors, the way that team operates. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is, no one can whistle a symphony, it takes a whole orchestra to play it. My guest today, my friend, Dr. David Burkus, is an expert on professional teamwork. He's a prominent thought leader in business and leadership with five best-selling books translated into dozens of languages. David's groundbreaking insights on leadership and teamwork have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, and Fast Company, among others. And his latest book, Best Team Ever, is set to challenge conventional wisdom on team dynamics and performance. David, welcome back to the Elevate Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm always excited to this. I feel like for like the last four years, we keep circulating around the same ideas, right? Because there was the whole world went remote. And then it was like, people were like, Bob, teach us how to go remote because that's what you run. And then I was already doing a book on that. And then you did the Elevate Teams. What's funny about that? I don't know who's copying who. No, no, no. I mean, it's what's Stephen Johnson's whole thing about you know, simultaneous invention or what have you. It's just, it shows me how much we're interested in the same topics. What's funny about it is we don't always agree on those same topics, which is what makes our chats that people don't get to listen in on so much fun. Yeah. And I love this quote that someone said, particularly in the context, I think, of organizations having opinions that I think maybe even said the head of Coinbase kind of wrote a manifesto on this, Brian Armstrong, and said, even when we agree on the problem, a lot of us don't agree on the solution, which I think is true as well. So you were a guest on episode number 17. We dug into your background. I encourage people to listen to that. That was a while ago. So I'd like to ask all my returning guests from pre-pandemic, like what's kind of changed in your life or business since March 2020? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the biggest one is I think when we chatted, I was still spending more time in the university setting than working directly with clients and organizations, which is now sort of flipped entirely. A lot of things, essentially, if you didn't have, if you weren't a hedge fund that happened to teach classes, a lot of universities hit a financial pinch. And as soon as they start talking about downsizing, et cetera, I was like, hey, I don't actually need this job. And there are plenty of great people who do. So please don't think, hey, let's keep me. Like, And so I just self-selected out. I only teach one class a year now as part of an, ex, like an executive doctoral program. So I'm a lot more focused on that. That's part of a broader kind of realization that I think a lot of people had during the pandemic, which is that I really ought to make my calendar mirror my priorities, right? When before the pandemic, most of us put work right in the middle of their calendar, eight to five or nine to five, five days out of the week. If you pulled up any calendar app or any daily planner or what have you, it was obvious that the center of that, even visually, was work and everything else we fit into the margins. I think COVID kind of threw everyone's schedules in a blender and made them realize, wait a minute, I can build a schedule that works best for me, right? So I'm still sort of very, very focused on that, right? We're actually recording this on the four days in between one family vacation and another one where I'm working, <laughs> right? So that's like the best summer ever. But it also sort of takes that approach. I'm much more deliberate about scheduling in the things that are priorities now, et cetera, because Partly I've got that flexibility. So I realize I say that from a place of privilege, but I think there's a lot of people that had that realization. And I think it also means that organizations are going to have to make do with that, with the realization that we can't just, especially with your top talent, 
right? That we can't just demand that they put their commitment to us at the center of their lives anymore. We need to figure out a way to integrate it a whole lot better. There's six ways I could go with your answer to that. First is, is Best Summer Ever the sequel to Best Team Ever? Is that... Yeah, Best Summer. I mean, it's going to be a parenting book called Best Summer Ever. Perfect. That goes with the 18 summers phenomenon. I also, I had a mentor who once said, show me your cat. I know he probably didn't say it as you and I've talked about most quotes are misattributed, but to the most well-known person who said it or just whoever we heard say it, but he said, show me your calendar and I'll tell you your priorities, right? Like see what, if the rubber hits the road. Yeah. I was talking to your calendar and your checkbook, right? I was talking to Whitney Johnson a couple of weeks ago and our mutual friend, Whitney, she asked me, what are you most proud of from last year? And I said, actually, funny you say that. I just did our taxes because as you know, when your taxes are complicated, like ours always are, it takes till like June to do them. And I said, and that made me look at all of our family expenses. And our number one expense for 2022 was charitable giving. Our number two was travel. And then our number three was housing, right? So again, I realize I say that in a place of privilege, but I've also worked a lot to get to that place of privilege where we can put those priorities. So calendar and checkbook are where your priorities really are. And we've got it. And by the way, travel for me means family travel. It doesn't mean like, like me disappearing from my children or wife. It means that we did it together. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people have that revelation. And as you said, our work has mirrored each other. Coming out of the pandemic, you kind of wrote your lead from anywhere, which is about remote leadership. You know, what I appreciate is like your, there are a lot of academics. Part of the reason I wrote my book was I was getting so frustrated at academics writing books about remote work. Your style is to interview people and talk to people. So if I think about the phases here, I think we're another interesting inflection. And before COVID, there are all these companies, remote work would never work, never for my business. Otherwise, then they were forced to do it. And for some, it worked really well. So after the pandemic, we've got the great resignation. Every company is like, you know, well, some weren't the investment banks and stuff weren't, but you can work remotely, you can do whatever you want. And I was a little skeptical that people were just saying this and not believing it and not supporting it, particularly around hybrid, because the job market was super tight. And so I said to him, look, we were a fully remote organization and some people were getting offers. And, you know, to be the one remote person in Pennsylvania on an entire team in California, I was like, look, just be careful about that dynamic that might not look and feel like it does at our organization. So now we're actually in this other turn now, I think, where now we're sorting out, as you do, like the kind of pretenders from the people who really wanted that change. You've got employees still declaring they never want to go back into the office, but people are as disengaged and lonely as ever. So it's been quite a roller coaster. I'm curious your thoughts on where we are on this. Yeah, well, predictions are tricky, especially about the future, right? But, you know, I tried to make a few in the book, and some of them have come out true, and some of them haven't. You know, my goal with Leading From Anywhere was to write kind of that middle manager survivor guide. I think you're exactly right. Like, there's a lot of academics who write macro. Here are the macro trends of remote. I was like, I don't, most people don't care about that, right? What most people are like, I had, I was a manager, I was a leader, and I was always in person, and then COVID forced me to be a remote leader. What the heck do I do? Right. And even then, though, it was kind of obvious to me having so many conversations with so many people in that situation that what we were headed for was something different than fully remote, like what you built at AP. And I called it working from anywhere, right? It's not work from home, it's work from anywhere. We settled on hybrid, which just reminds me of the cars no one actually wants to drive, right? But whatever, I digress. The prediction that I had was essentially that I wasn't actually all that bullish on the future of remote work, right? Pre pandemic, if you look at the American workforce, about 5 to 10% of the American workforce worked from home 
predominantly, just five to 10, right? And then we had COVID. And I know it's funny, it feels like everyone worked remote. It's not actually true. And the absolute peak was only 40% of the American workforce, right? Because you have essential workers. Right, probably white collar professional services, but you have plenty of restaurants and delivery. Exactly, restaurants and delivery. My wife's an ER doctor. You can't really fight COVID remotely, (laughs) right? So only about 40% of the workforce went remote. And then if you look at where we are now, like Nicholas Bloom at Stanford probably has the best research on this. He says, hey, it's 30% and that's probably where it'll stay. I think he's wrong for exactly the reasons that you pointed out, which is that hybrid is harder, right? Work from anywhere is harder. You have the investment banks, et cetera, that are already calling everybody back. But I think the truth is most people are going to continue to play lip service to hybrid and to flex time. And yet senior leaders are there five days a week, which means that middle managers need to be there five days a week, which means that if I want to get promoted, I need to be there four and a half days a week. And by like 2025, 2026, the whole thing will have fallen over like the green screen in the background. Yeah. Let's take a two second pause here. Of all the podcasts I've done, I haven't done that before. Hold on one sec. No, it's good. It's fine. You held it together well. When the cleaners come to clean in here, they remove my leg supports, I think. Uh, no, what I was looking for was a transition. I found it happened. And then I had to think about how am I going to work the fact that it happened in? Where can I get to? So that we can just leave it in, right? And if you're only listening to audio... I feel bad. You have no idea what just happened. So what I think is going to happen is it's going to be easier and easier and easier to know that you need to be in the office if you're upwardly mobile. And so we're going to gradually spend the majority of our time there. Where I hope, where I'm setting my hopes is actually not a percentage of the workforce working from home or what have you, but that what we get is an increase in flex time. Remember we opened with, and I, at least I did it intentionally. I don't know if you did. We opened with this idea that show me your priorities and show your calendar. There's more people that want to do that. So I hope where most organizations land is we want you in the office. We don't care anymore, right? I'm hoping what we arrive at is less hybrid and more flexible. But if you're going to be in the office, you should probably pass with other humans while you're there, right? That would be the whole point of coming in, right? Yeah, right. And that's exactly right. My recommendation to a lot of companies now, and it's funny, what I used to recommend, this is where my predictions didn't go so well was that you set, you push the decision-making down as low as it can go on when people are in the office so that teams stay together. What I've realized is the problem with that a year later is that you end up with certain teams that are in the office, but then the other team, they collaborate for overlapping hours. The hour thing is, I always come back to the investment banks, either for better or for worse in their examples, because at least they were clear on what they valued. But The way they announced it is more of a power dynamic than talking about the business need. So the example I always give is like, rather than saying, we're coming back to the office and this is a disgrace or otherwise, you know, Goldman Sachs said that it was an aberration that they were going to fix. And that was horrible a week before they announced the most profitable and revenue quarter in the history of the company. I kind of thought that that might feel like a slap in the face to employees that had all been just making this work from home. A year later, uh, with everyone back in the office, they had their worst quarter in revenue in 10 years. I'm not saying that that is because they were at home or not at home, but clearly there's many more factors to how your business is where people are working. But what's interesting was there was never sort of a context of the business requirement or explaining to people like, look, when we were all home, it was okay to pitch a $100 million IPO from Zoom because that's all we had. But now like, we have a client coming in for a $100 million IPO. Like they want people at the table and this is our business and we need to be there. Like that feels like less of a power play. And then in terms of talking about 
the actual business or the things that you're doing and where it works and it doesn't work. Like I can tell you, does not work for an offsite. Horrible. We tried our quarterly offsites. Awful. Like it requires being up at night and the whiteboard and all this stuff. So it does feel like sometimes it's kind of an old school because I said so or forced you rather than making the case to employees where it would be better for them and where it's better for the team and where it's not. Yeah. I think the number one driver of all of these overly aggressive return to office programs is this weird assumption that being in person is just magical, right? Like, because you hear them talk about culture, or you hear them talk about collaboration, or, and you know, because you've done it, these are all problems you can solve deliberately. And by the way, even if you're on site, and you're not deliberate about your culture, it's still gonna suck, right? I mean, we're talking about Goldman Sachs, after all, right? No offense to Goldman Sachs, but like, that's an organization that has lots of different Twitter parody accounts out there. I'm just saying. So you have to be deliberate no matter what you do. What I think is lacking is this realization that the office is just another tool for collaboration. And that at the core of how we make the business case and what we decide on is that what are the things that are more advantageous to collaborate in person on versus not pitching a hundred million dollar deal to a client? Exactly right. Bonding, team building activities, exactly right. Problem solving, like the heck is still not there where idea jet are virtually than in person. Now, and you know, there's certain parts of the process of solving a problem, like doing your research and thinking up what you want to pitch, what have you, but just generic brainstorming seems to still happen better in person. So that's what I think is missing from the conversation, which is this is just another tool for collaboration, like Zoom, like a virtual whiteboard, like Basecamp, whatever. And what we ought to be doing is going, what are the activities we need that in-person tool for versus these other tools? Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. 
Right. Back to the banking example. Look, on Tuesday and Wednesday, we have major pitches worth $200 million. We need you to be in the office. On Friday, when you're closing a deal and you're in a spreadsheet all day for 14 hours and not going to look up or talk to anyone, we don't need you to come to the office to lock yourself in the office and be performative, right? Like, I just find like more leaders on the content, if they would explain the context, here's one that comes up a lot too. I talked about this on another podcast. Like, again, I think it's just creating some understanding. A lot of employees are frustrated because the teams are cracking down on where they can work, right? And the assumption is they must just want to create policy and they're out to get us. And the HR teams are like, look, we're a 50-person company. Like, we can't register in 50 states. We can't keep track of if people are working from Russia and Iran, which is illegal, or they're going to companies where we would have to file and pay $10,000. And so we need to restrict this to where we can actually manage it and do this. And it's just a lack of kind of understanding of like, hey, these are people that are trying to solve problems just like we are. So kind of explaining the business case you're trying to solve rather than it seems like what's an arbitrary policy. Yeah. I mean, you look at a a really tight urban corridor like New York City. And you see that even just with working from home, right? Like if you live, it's entirely possible to work in New York City and live in Jersey, which means a difference in how we process income taxes. And if you suddenly decide I'm not coming to the office, I'm going to stay at home. That's a world of difference on a tiny little river. Well, I guess it's not that tiny of a river, but you know what I mean, right? And then you add in international, what have you. And, and yeah, it gets really quite complicated. Truthfully, I think this is an area where I'm optimistic. There's two parts of this where I'm optimistic about our long-term future. And maybe I shouldn't be. Maybe I just am optimistic because I don't spend enough time in Washington, D.C. And if I did, I'd be pessimistic. But labor laws around state variation. And then also, I think we're missing in the United States some sort of middle ground between contractor and employee. Part-time employee just doesn't cut it. If we think about the way virtual and everyone having some experience with hiring collaboration works now, I think we're going to have a lot of what, to get nerdy, what Charles Handy in the 1980s called cloverleaf organizations, where we have this mix of full-time employees, contractors, temporary employees, what have you. And, And I don't think we have that perfect categorization yet. No, the people want that. It's characterized as exploitation by local governments and people who don't understand business. And the people are saying, I don't want to be employed. This is what I want to do. Ironically, I think if we did, it might actually solve some of that state-by-state problem too. But you're right. Most employees don't think about that. It's the people in HR, the business owners, the senior executives have to think about it. And then most senior executives and HR folks don't do a good enough job communicating that of like, here's why we need you to be back within 30 miles of an office or what have you, which is always tainted as this weird control thing. And it's really just like, no, you can't live in Alberta. We don't know how to file taxes in Canada. Or it costs us ten, twenty thousand dollars to be there. Do you want to pay that? And by the way, if you're going to go there and we're going to pay it, and then you're going to be like, oh, I want to be in London next week, like that just doesn't work, right? So, well, bridging this is actually the topic of next week's Friday Forward. So this will be out by then. But kind of bridging these two topics is really interesting. So I like telling the story, and I might have told to you where I was on a panel, kind of during the Great Resignation, coming out of COVID, and people are like, what do you think the It's going to kind of future workforce. What do you think people want going forward or employees? I said, look, I think people are really going to want flexibility. I think this is going to continue to be kind of number one hallmark. And there was a woman at the end of the panel who said, I think people are going to want to work where they want, on what they want, and how they want. Kind of couldn't leave that alone. So when it came back around, I was like, look, I appreciate that. But like those people should go drive for Uber or start their own business or do something because that is not what being part of a team is. And so we have this dichotomy going on right now where I think people are between what they say they want and what's actually good for them. So they're saying, 
I don't want to come back in the office. I don't want to do this. I want to be independent. Leave me alone. Yet all measures of mental health and loneliness and everything are off the chart. And this rugged individualism that has sort of come out of COVID, I think goes in the flies in the face of the fact a lot of stats around people are 10 times happier at work if they have a best friend. So many stats that I've read, like consistently, I don't have them all in front of me that like people need friends and connection and meaning and stuff from work. So Henry Ford once said, you know, if I asked the people what they want, they would have said faster horses. This individualism that I think has come out of this is making people unhappy. Being part of a team is probably the best work of most people's lives, but it requires sacrifice. It doesn't mean that you shoot every night or that you can do whatever you want. It requires some give and take. Like, do you think this is a paradox that we're going to have to figure out? Because I think most people will look back on their lives, whether it was professional, athletic, civic, or otherwise, and will point the highlight will be a super high performing team that they were a part of. Yeah, no, I totally agree. That's why the follow up to leading from anywhere, for me at least, and also for you, was best team ever, right? Because so much of that was my other big COVID realization is that so much of your experience of work is what it's like to work on a specific team, not necessarily a brand, right? A notable company, or not necessarily for your highest salary. It was the team you were most on. But look, this isn't new, right? We have for all of human existence, but for decades, we found it in the research that people act towards their short-term interests and against their long-term interests, right? Like I would love to look skinny and like Brad Pitt, but I also love Oreos and guess which one I pick on a more frequent basis, right? It's certainly not working out. Right. And so we do the same thing with Netflix, right? We all say we want to watch Oppenheimer, but we actually watch Barbie, right? If you look at people's Netflix cues, like there's certain classic movies that we've always wanted to watch. And then we sign in and we're like, oh, yeah, but there's a new Mike Birbiglia special. Maybe I'll just watch that instead, right? We do that all the time. So the idea that we do that with our schedules isn't anything new. Where I think this gets sticky, where there's a potential paradox is actually with your top performers, your middle of the road, the B players that make up the core. I'm not undercutting them, maybe the core of every organization and they're vital. They're probably going to go along with whatever happens, right? So this is why I say I'm not all that optimistic for the future of a fully remote company, unless you already were before the pandemic, or you decided very early on that you're committed to that. If you say we're going to go hybrid and you're not very deliberate about it, most people are going to show up at the office four to five days a week again because they just pick up that that's the subtle expectation. The difference is going to be your top performers. I think that's who that woman on your panel is is speaking to, people who know they've got the power because of who they are. And there, there's a delicate conversation to be had about your autonomy, which does empower you to perform better and your accountability to the rest of the team. And this has happened in other contexts too, right? Because this is to some extent, this is also the grand paradox of what do you do with a great performer who's not a great team player? Well, if being a great team player is part of what we need from you, then you're not actually a great performer, right? But I think we're still kind of uncomfortable having that conversation. But it's one we're going to have to have, like you said, as we make the business case, that part of your job isn't just getting these results done. It's also the way you support the team. It's the way that new members of the team look to you as a leader and a guide and a mentor and what have you. And maybe we need to standardize that a bit more in job descriptions and performance appraisals so we can hold people accountable to it. But I think that's a lot of the frustration that we're getting now with giving too much power to people and saying they're going to have total flexibility, et cetera, where they want, when they want, what have you. That's all well and great if your job is 100% solo. Most people's aren't. And so we need to have a conversation about those other unstated parts of your job description that require collaboration. Well, this goes back to that Clover thing. And I think deciding what kind of organization you're going to be. So someone asked me after one of my webinars, like, look, we have this person on our team. They just 
don't want to come anything. They just want to do their work. They want to do it. And, and I was kind of like, what's your culture? What kind of company do you want? Do you want that? Is there a place for that? Like individual contributors, or is that not okay as part of your culture? Like there's not a universal right or wrong. I think you need to make that decision knowing that what you permit is what you promote. Yeah, I agree. And then also, if you are going to stay committed to being a more hybrid and more flexible environment, it's also how the people you've already promoted act, right? Like if you want to actually say we have flexibility, then you need your senior leaders to not be in the office often because people are going to think, oh, in order to get FaceTime, that's what I need to do. So I feel bad because it's kind of the catch-all answer to so much of what we're talking about. Like, how do you do this? You do it deliberately, right? You decide what you're going to do and you be deliberate. Well, I think what I was amazed was a year after COVID, people still hadn't even really made a decision. They were hedging. So how could you possibly be executing well if your employees weren't clear on what your choice was? And if you're executing on, we're back in the office, great. If you're executing on fully remote, if you're executing on hybrid, there's multiple versions of that that you need to get right. One of the companies that I had spoke to said, look, you have to declare whether you're hybrid or fully remote. You can only change it once a quarter. And if you're fully remote, then we, we know to execute these processes against you and check it. I was like, that that's smart. Like, you know, so we, we understand that these people are going to be in the office. These people aren't. And so we know how to manage those situations. I still think even a couple of years later, people are a little chickening out. It's funny. They're afraid of losing people. I'm like, you're going to piss off everyone rather than lose a few people. If you really are not going back to the office for good, like, and people want to be back in the office, you're better off them knowing that and going to a different job. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I still, I lose track of how many times, even this year, however many months we are removed from all of this, that I talk to, you know, recruiters and HR folks that say, oh yeah, we have remote options available in our job listings, but not really. If you make it past like the first round, we're going to try and talk you into coming to the office. Like, which first of all is kind of unethical, Right. But it speaks to that pinch that you're feeling where people still feel like, oh, we're going to lose good talent, what have you. you might. Right. But if you're going to lose talent that refuses to be in sight collaborating with people, then you didn't actually lose anything. Now, I also think not to go pessimistic, but I was an academic for a while. So it's in my nature. I also think a lot of companies are waiting for that recession we've been waiting for for like two years now. Because let's just be, again, pessimistic and honest. If you need to get rid of 10% of your headcount and you declare we're all coming back to the office, then you didn't really lay anyone off. You just let the people who didn't want to come back <laughs> decide to leave. And so now it doesn't look as negative. Part of me, my, again, the cynical part of me kind of wonders if there's some organizations out there waiting for that. Rather than just putting a stake in the ground and saying, like, I give the banks credit on that or the firms that said... Like, look, here's what we're doing. It's back in the office or quit. Like, I'm not sure that's the right answer in today's world, but at least they were clear on their perspective. Yeah, I should say, I don't endorse waiting around for a recession to have voluntary turnover. I'm just saying, I think there's a lot of conflict avoidance people out there who that's their solution, right? Is we'll just wait until the time is right to announce everyone back at the office. But what you end up doing is losing people who want that certainty, right? And this happens in every single organization. I'm sure you've seen it. Usually when there's a change or layoffs or anything like that, the first people who hit the lifeboats are usually your most talented people who saw it coming and decided on something stable. So it's a strategy. I'm not saying it's a good one. It's just one I think is probably being employed more often than we're willing to talk about. Yeah. And this is where the teamwork thing goes hand in hand. I said, look, I think if the organization is going to give flexibility, it's got to be a two-way street. You can't say that Outside of nine to five is totally protected, yet I would like all kinds of freedoms from within nine to five. I, my thing is your kid's softball game is on Thursday afternoon and nothing's going on and go see that. That's awesome. But when there's a million dollar sales proposal on Monday morning, like I kind of expect people aren't going to say, oh, it's Sunday night. 
I can't do that, right? That's a million dollars in revenue that pays bonuses and goes to the team. Like this to me is part of the team thing. I remember Jack Stack, but one of the sales guys in EO said, you know, talked about sort of being part of a team and the puts and the takes. And he said, you know, no freshman goes to Alabama and goes to Nick Saban. Well, I see your playbooks and stuff, but I've got my own style and this is how I do it. And here's how it's going to go, right? I mean, this is, I think we're kind of forgetting a little bit about what it's being part of a team kind of means and that that doesn't mean self-optimization all of the time. Right. No. And that's what I was talking about earlier with that balance, right? Between autonomy and accountability. And I think right now, a lot of managers and a lot of senior leaders are trying to have the conversation about what's the right percentage of autonomy and not even bringing up the fact that no, 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 no. Part of this conversation is accountability to the team and what they need from you. Yeah. Not everyone can shoot 40 baskets tonight. It doesn't work, right? Of course, everyone would always like the ball. That is sort of an analogy. It just, that's not, that doesn't win games. So from your perspective, how does a leader differentiate between a world-class individual performer and someone who's a great team player? Yeah. Well, I think this is where, you know, to, to use your sports analogy, you're not going to do this with a freshman, but you are, if you're a professional sports team, you are often going to build a team around star players, Right. And so then what you're looking for are not only the LeBrons, but also the Shane Battiers, right? Which is, I've already tapped, I, like I've now exhausted the extent of my NBA knowledge. What I usually tell people though, is when... And for people who don't have it, you know, they know LeBron James, but Shane Battier was a guy who would dive around the floor, pick up balls, do all the little things, didn't need the spotlight. Like that was sort of his... And the reason the Heat won, right? If you remember when LeBron went to Miami and they said, we're going to win all these championships and they didn't the first season. And then they added Shane Battier. And not only does he do all of that, he's in your ear on the court. Hey, did you notice number seven's doing this? Like he's telling LeBron James, he's the on-court coach, right? Willing to be in that background. Now... I have a preference, right? Which is if I had to choose between building a team around a talented but egotistical player, you know, star player, or building a team entirely of team players, I would actually pick the second because I think the star player emerges out of that. As I say it in the book, talent doesn't make the team, the team makes the talent. Now, sometimes you got to do what you got to do and you have to build it around that person. But I would much rather focus in on building that culture of a team collaboration. Now, part of this is to switch sports if I may, part of this is because I'm from Philadelphia and the only Super Bowl trophy we've ever won was when Nick Foles, the great team player, became the quarterback. So maybe I'm biased here, right? But we see that more often, even in organizations. We pay top dollar to try and recruit people out into certain firms and then they kind of fall apart. They don't really work all that well because we didn't pay attention to the team dynamic and what have you. So, you know, how does a leader do that? I think you start with that team culture first. And I think that sometimes means telling that star player who's not willing to get on board with what makes for a great team culture that they need to be successful in a different organization and trusting that a star player will come out of that. Now, sometimes you get lucky. And when you build a great team culture, you also get a person who wants to work on that great team culture. But that doesn't happen. That's like the least often scenario. So I think the best case scenario is to focus in on how do we build that team culture and then we trust that talented players will come out of that or will want to work on that. I know a lot of people don't like sports analogies, but since we're here, a lot of times we don't talk about the economic and look, the Patriots have followed this philosophy forever, which is you can give a star the huge contract and pay them ridiculously, but you've got 58 roles on the team. And that means that you're going to have to then sacrifice in other places. I don't think a lot of organizations consider the salary cap kind of phenomenon enough, which is also, again, we take a huge risk on this star player and they don't work out. We've only been able to afford lower role players on the rest of our starting team, right? 
Yeah, there's actually some research on it. Boris Groisberg at Harvard has a ton of research on this idea that mostly in a couple different fields, one of them actually an investment analyst. I know we were picking on Goldman Sachs earlier, but these are the people that study the industry and then write the report that people at Goldman Sachs read to get an idea of what they want to invest in. And often when those people call it right, when their analysis of an industry is great, the phone rings and a different firm tries to recruit them away. And what you find most consistently is that when we just blow out the potential salary and pay half a million, 750000 a million dollars salary to this person to recruit them away, not only does their performance decline, the performance of the team they're added onto declines as well. So in other words, not only do we not get a return on investment in you, you tanked the team that we put you on as well. And the only exception to that, actually, there were two. And what's the reason? What's the concluded reason for that? Yeah. So the concluded reason is about 60% of individual performance is actually explained by the team you're on, the resources you have access to, the company culture, what have you, right? I look at it this way. Talent is great, but talent is like gasoline. Talent is a fuel, and you need an engine that turns talent into performance. The team and the resources an organization can provide are that engine right? They're what actually helps you unlock it, right? And the reason I say this is the only two exceptions to that tanking of talent thing that happened were what's often referred to as lift outs or sometimes aqua hires, right? In other words, we got the whole team and we moved them over. So they still already know how to work together well, or women, believe it or not, were much less likely to have it happen. And that the theory there is that women were, at the time the research was being done, it's probably still true, that women were much more deliberate about building a network across organizations and across an industry because they had fewer allies inside any individual one company to rely on. In other words, they couldn't rely on an old boys network inside a firm, so they had to build their own support system. And that ended up making them more resilient when they went to a different organization because they still had people they can call, right? In either case, it's still the same, right? It's this recognition among the liftouts and among the women that I need other people to take my talent and turn it into performance. And not every star player believes that. Some people really do believe all they need is them, right? And only a very, very few people in the world is that ever true for, right? Yeah. It's kind of amazing to me, both in, despite the data, right? Like this is like professional sports, the draft, they trade a first round this year for two first rounds next year. It doesn't make any sense, right? From a objective worth. Uh, But similarly, people keep making these mistakes. I know in football, the average free agent contract doesn't last two years. And everyone assumes that... I always think it's interesting. That person practiced with the other team every day. The coaches saw the person, all this stuff. Yet you believe that they're worth three times as much as the people who are closest to them all day long. It's not that different in business. When people jump and they give someone a huge title and a huge like you said, to bring them over and they keep doing it, but the data probably says that it doesn't work. Yeah. That's not to say I don't think it can work. I just think what's happening is we're not paying enough attention to the cultural dynamic, the habits, the norms and behaviors, the way that team operates. You know, And this is not new. I talk about this a bit in, in Best Team Ever, but I also talked about it in Under New Management, which is, I think, what we talked about in episode 17, however many years ago. At the time, it was because I was a big, and still am, a big fan of if you've got a situation where you can make it work, of tryouts, of probationary periods. If we're going to hire you for 90 days and then we're going to decide whether or not it's a fit or we're going to have you work on a project while you know and pay you as a contractor while we're still examining having you join the team. And by the way, that's not most of the time when orgs say we're hiring for culture fit, what they mean is like, could I go have a beer with you? And what you end up doing is getting way too much homogeny, homogeneity, however you're supposed to say that word. What I'm talking about is, are you actually working well with these people? You can be different from somebody ideologically, philosophically, work style wise, but you could still collaborate with them. And so that's let's get real world experience about what it's like to work alongside you 
before we make a long-term decision on your hiring because those cultural things matter. Whether or not you fit into the way the existing team works matters more, especially in the first year or two, matters more than whatever skills and knowledge and ability you bring to the team. That's a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow, by the way. I would tell you, and I don't have the empirical data to back this up, but two weeks. Historically in our organization, the first two weeks had a 99% correlation to someone's success. Like it's really that quick. And you know, eventually we started having discussions after a month saying, I don't think it's going to work out. Do you want to pretend this job didn't exist and go somewhere else? And I, and I know people would say externally, how could you possibly? I'm like, look, nine people started at the same time doing a similar thing. And this person just had a whole set of challenges that didn't exist. Not only the team dynamic, but once you get into a deficit that you're trying to trust deficit that you're trying to work your way out of, that becomes really hard. Yeah. And I'm racking my brain as I'm talking to try and think of any studies that might back up two weeks. But it's I see that in a lot of other anecdotally in a lot of other organizations. And that was Zappos' thing, right? Your primary training was about during the interview, like they would you'd go through primary training and then you'd be like, here's what we're about, here's what your job is going to be, et cetera. If you don't think it's a fit, we'll give you a severance to leave. Right. I mean, they said we'll pay you to quit, but that's really what it was. It's like we'll give you a severance so you can find a job is a fit because we know it already and we care more about it now. So yeah, I think you do find out really, really early, but you're not willing to confront it. I think the other thing that happens around this is when we hire one of those star players, usually the manager that sort of negotiates the deal brings them gets all sorts of accolades, right? Way to go landing that person. We're super excited. Look at her, her trajectory of success, et cetera. What never happens in almost any organization is accountability for bad hires, right? It is, hey, that person flamed out within a few weeks. Maybe we need to look at the decision makers who brought them into the organization and give them some training on better interviewing or what have you, right? Anyone who doesn't last a month or two, you should 100% require the whole interviewing team to get back together, look at what they do wrong and make some suggestions. Again, this is not about what can we change next time? What did we miss? How do we not end up here again, right? It's looking forward. Yeah, but we don't do that, right? We celebrate the successes of when those star acquisitions work out. We very, very rarely do an after action review on when they don't and figure out what to place blame on. I was about to say where to place blame, but you're exactly right. Success has many fathers, failure is an orphan. Yeah, exactly. So the book talks about shaping habits and the best practices to bring out kind of the best in each team member. Can you share a couple examples of those? Yeah. So fundamentally, and we say habit, I actually find habits and norms and all of that I interchange with culture, right? Because when we're talking about culture of a team, that's what we're really talking about. How do we interact with each other? What are the habits around collaboration? When you look at all the research, there's like 40 years of great research on this. That one downside is every academic uses his or her own terms for it, right? And so you have to do a lot of synthesis to figure out where all of the overlap is. But fundamentally, when I looked at it all, what I kind of arrived at was there were three elements of it, right? So we have the sense of common understanding, which is a lot of what we've been talking about for a while. How well do you understand the preferences of your team, their strengths and weaknesses, but also how much clarity you have on the exact job and what's expected of you? Psychological safety, which is how free do you feel to take an interpersonal risk on a team, meaning to speak up when you disagree or to admit a failure or to share a crazy idea. And then the third one is a sense of pro-social purpose, meaning the team knows why they're working. I actually think when you look at the research, teams are most bonded and most motivated when it's not why are we doing what we do, but who is served by what we do. In other words, we see this is the direct beneficiary of, of our team. And especially for large organizations, this matters because many teams' job is to serve a different team in the organization. So their true purpose as a team, their who is actually someone internal. So you can't point to like 
a customer success story or a stakeholder improvement story or something like that, you have to point to, hey, if we do a great job, it empowers this team to do their work better. So that's our kind of motivational guidance. That's how we serve the organization. So you have those kind of three elements, common understanding, psychological safety, and pro-social purpose. People need to know what to expect from the team and also what to expect from the behavior of other people. They need to feel free to actually bring their whole selves to work, including when they disagree with the team. And they need to know their work matters and know who it matters for. And usually when they know that, they end up doing what I call putting we over me, right? They end up thinking, hey, it's much more important about the team than it is my own individual results and what have you, which mitigates a lot of what we just spent the last like 30 minutes trashing. Right. But to do that, this is the discussion I've had with a lot of business owners who don't really want to put forward a culture or a vision or sort of a mission that people could rally around. Like, look, it's going to be very hard. You can either have all these kind of rent for hire people that will work on projects of your organization. But if you want them to come work there, they kind of going to need a compelling reason to do that in a world where there's a lots of different type of work that can be done, much more per diem work that can be done. Yeah, especially not to keep abusing sports analogies, especially if your salary cap is a lot lower than others, right? If you don't have the pockets of a competitive organization. And so, yeah, you might be able to have that rent for higher talent, but usually the top talent, if they're only motivated by getting paid to bring in results, they're going to be motivated by who can pay them the most. That's totally different, right? If you can give them that kind of compelling reason. I, and I think most organizations get this. I think most people, you know, Simon Sinek, popularized the idea of why, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. So most people get that yeah. we have a compelling vision. I think most leaders still don't know how to talk purpose because they end up talking about what is meaningful to them, right? And especially founders, you have your sort of vision and we're going to do this and it's going to disrupt the industry or it's going to make this kind of impact, what have you. And that's great. But as when you get large, most people can't see that. We as humans were wired to see our impact based on who we can see impacted by our work. So don't just tell me how we're disrupting an industry. Don't just tell me how we're changing something. Show me who's changed. Tell me those stories, and I'll be much more motivated to act than just, we exist to mission statement. Our friend Clay Hebert calls that the glass plaque problem, right? We take this beautiful mission statement that looks great to us. We inscribe it on a glass plaque. We put it in the lobby, and everyone walks by it every day and doesn't read it. And of course, now they're not even in the lobby every day, so they're not even having the chance to read it. That is far less motivating than here is who we serve. And when you do a great job, it empowers these people to do their best work too. Yeah. And, you know, I heard someone coming out of a board meeting circuit recently saying the top discussion was that they're just not going to keep Gen Z for more than two, three years, whether they love the job or don't love the job. But, you know, so some of it's, I understand like self-motivating. I think someone who's maybe 40 and looking to stick around for a while versus someone who's looking to learn, I think you got to take that down a little bit to the people like you're going to come here and you're going to learn a ton. And here's how we're going to invest in you. And you might not be here forever, but here's a little bit of what's in it for you. Yeah. And by the way, I don't know that I agree with the idea that Gen Z is only going to be around for two or three years if you're doing a good enough job showing them that growth path and changing their roles, right? They're going to look for something new every two to three years. Maybe we can make that something new still internal, right? So yeah, I think you need that. But I also, I mean, there's a ton of, and it's really hard to separate the data on this, by the way, between generational versus just stage of life. But current young people, whether or not they stay young and they were called generational or whether or not you know they grow out of it and it's the newest group of young people, are, tend to be more motivated by those purpose-driven organizations, right? The difference is they live in a world, I mean, you look at the philanthropy industry and they've known for decades that we'll make more money telling an individual story than giving you the statistics on you know the problem that we're solving or what have you. 
We're not doing that when we talk about organizational mission and purpose as much, but we've got a whole group of people who've been trained to see their impact based on that. Individual stories, preferably filmed in vertical format in less than 60 seconds. We ought to be talking about it that way. We can still keep the mission statement, the big thing that goes in our 10K and on our glass plaque and what have you, but we ought to be training a lot of team leaders to talk about those specific stories and share those specific wins. So you've looked at a lot of teams and studied a lot of stuff. I'm curious, like, What's an example of a real world team that you studied that embodies kind of all the principles you discuss in the book? Well, so that embodies all of them. I'm asking you to choose between your children here. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I end the book with the story of Gary Ridge, who is a mutual friend of ours and his sort of transformation at WD-40 company. And I'm fascinated with WD-40 because fundamentally they sell oil in a can. Like that's, if they sell something- Hasn't changed in 20 years. Hasn't changed longer than that, right? And then also like it's oil, it's petroleum, right? So they sell a product not everybody is super excited about yet. And yet everybody's fanatically excited about how this solves problems, what have you. And Gary was really responsible for a lot of that. When he was hired- to become the new CEO of the WD-40 company. I mean, it was at the end, you can read them. They're still around. The analyst reports of this company were like, it's dead in the water. They called it a victim of its own success. In other words, it got market penetration so fast, it can only go down from here. And yet they actually, I think- And had a 20, I think a 25% like- People liked working there, engagement, like everything was in the toilet. Was terrible. And so what Gary did was a couple of different things. They were all kind of in line with these three elements. I mean, he reframed the organization to be about our tribe, right? To be about not only are we going to provide for you and give you those growth opportunities you and I were just talking about, but we need to have some accountability for each other too. We needed to take care of the tribe. When we do well, we all do well. So in that case, the who that we're talking about is actually us, right? We exist as an organization and in doing so, we make all of our own lives better. Now, they also talked about it on a, on a smaller scale too, because Gary really kind of was in charge of rebranding this idea that what does WD-40 do? We make heroes out of everyday people, right? Because if you get a squeaky door and it's driving your family nuts and you finally spray it, you're a hero, a micro hero, right? But you're still sort of a hero. The other thing he did is help them reframe failures into what he called learning moments. So this is a psychological safety element, right? This is the idea. That, and this was funny. He went public faster than I might recommend, but it worked. Is He just basically said, okay, learning moment, blanket amnesty for failures. If you fess up and just say, hey, I had a learning moment and here's what happened. In other words, it's okay to talk about our failures. We're not going to punish you for a one-off failure that's everybody fails from time to time. You don't need to hide it. What we want is to learn from it. And Gary actually, in order to get this going inside WD-40, actually had a contest every month, like learning moment of the month, email me the CEO. Imagine this. This is why I say I don't recommend it. You got to be the right personality to pull this off. He was encouraging any employee to email him their failure story along with what they learned. And then he would pick a winner every month and send it out along with a bonus and some praise to the people and what have you. First month, he got four submissions, but he picked one, celebrated it. And then he got a few more and he got a few more and he got a few more. So over time, building that sense of psychological safety. So you have this common understanding around the idea that we're a tribe and we're holding each other accountable and we need to work together. You have psychological safety in the learning moments and you have a pro-social purpose kind of on two levels, which is that we make heroes and that we exist as an organization to make the lives of ourselves as employees better as well. So your individual career is great, but we're also accountable to the tribe. As a result, it really sort of, what's interesting is the market share of WD-40 did not increase at all. What happened is they started coming up with all of these ways to A, to go international, 
and B, to come up with new applications of the product. So the product didn't change, the container changed based on all of these different situations that made it the perfect tool for totally new areas to judge market share. And over time, I think the last time I looked, it was like the stock price in, under Gary's tenure was like a 1,321% increase. Like it was an annual rate of return of about 15% annualized, right? Which is crazy for a fundamentally dead company, but it shows kind of that power of, hey, and then they didn't hire any star players. They didn't hire any new marketing managers that came up with any of the ideas, et cetera. Like they didn't go pay top dollar for Don Draper or whatever. They focused on the team. And let's think about the ways we interact together. Let's pay attention to the habits we're using to collaborate and make them more positive. And stars grew out of that. Lots of people grew in new roles and new organizations because they had such great performance at WD40. But it happened on that focusing in on the team element. And like you said, you're asking me to pick between my children, but that's probably for thinking about all of them and embody them. That's one of my favorites. And Gary's just an all around great person, too. Yeah. Another lesson from Gary that I've heard him share, which I think because so many organizations have like kind of fake or performative core values, like to me, core values should be able to the combination serve in lieu of a rule book. And I don't know if you've heard Gary say, but he said anyone who made a decision that supported one or more of the core values of the organization was always safe. How many organizations do you think believe enough in their core values to make a statement like that? And how many individuals would be better off if they understood their core values and knew when they were safe with their decisions? Yeah, I know. And I talk about this often in the context of like, I don't even remember what podcast it was, but I was just saying it a couple of days ago. If your values don't cost you something, then they're not really values, right? So the idea of what Gary's getting at is like, you made a decision and it was in line with our core values. And yet it may not have been the most optimal solution. It might have failed, right? But it was in line with the core values. And so again, blanket amnesty, right? No problem there. It Sometimes it costs you something. It would be the wisest decision to maximize shareholder value would be to lay lots of people off, maximize process efficiency, come to terms with the idea that we're never going to increase market share in WD-40. So all we can do is decrease cost. But that's not in line with the values of a tribe. It cost them something in the short term to not go that route. What they got at the end of it is a great success story, but you don't know that when you start on the process, right? What you're looking at is, hmm, this is actually a more costly path to go, but it is in line with our values. So we just have to trust that this is the right call. All right. So last question, I'll mix it up on here. You might need a minute to think about this, but what's the inverse? What's the team that should have been a total home run, but just couldn't work together and was a disaster? My favorite example is Quibi. Have you ever studied Quibi? Do you remember what Quibi is? Yeah, this is the short video thing. Yeah, the short video thing that came out right before TikTok. They had a superstar senior leadership team among people who maybe not have been superstars. Some of them have been indicted. That's a whole other thing, right? But it's this great idea of like, let's get a powerhouse of entertainers together, right? And then we'll just trust that we'll all figure out short video and what have you. And then what ends up winning in that category turns out to be user-generated content of Charlie D'Amelio dancing, right? Like the call on the future is short form video was not wrong. It was the right call. The problem was you built this sort of team of people who were all at the apex of their career and you brought them in because they were top executives, big names and what have you. And in my mind, when you look at what ha- what went wrong with Quibi, you have a lack of psychological safety of people, anyone is willing to speak up and go, you know, that's not what I'm seeing, right? Maybe we don't need to film a cinematic 90-minute movie in 10-minute segments where when you orient your phone from vertical to horizontal, it actually flips what you see in the picture and all. Maybe we don't need to do that. Maybe we could just do short-form user-generated content. I firmly believe someone they hired at some point spoke up on that. 
But the senior, they had a plan and they were right. And they're like, do you know who we are? Do you know what we've done? Right, exactly. And so you end up with a well-financed, well-recruited team that just falls apart. And by the way, the reason I had to, I love the fall apart of Quibi. I was really tempted to go with sports teams there, but I figured we've done it too much. I was hoping you'd move away from that. Yeah. Yeah. When you talk about failure sports teams, we get a lot of hate mail. So there's that too. You can find them in sports too, if you're willing to. Yeah. Without naming it in sports, it's usually when they get the four old all-stars together, it doesn't work. Like it's been done many times and it just doesn't, people have tried it and tried it. It doesn't work unless you had that glue or the chain batty or someone else that helped hold it together. All right, David, look forward to, we'll have you on again. I'm sure you'll have a few more books by then, but thank you for joining us. Your insights into leadership and teamwork are always very valuable. Oh, thank you. Yours as well, too. I was about to say, hopefully the next time we don't end up writing similar, but it makes for um, awesome conversations. I always love that chat. I promise your next book is not like mine because mine is a parable, unless you're going in that direction. Yeah, no, not. You can take the parable route. You can go with it. All right, good. Well, to our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to David and Best Team Ever, which you can buy wherever books are sold on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as that's what helps the most new users discover the show and great guests like David. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.